the very young, or the way young Meg Murray and her companions had just traveled through time and space was described as a wrinkle in time. In Madeline Lingle's novel by that name, the first time Meg traveled this way, she had no idea what was happening, why she couldn't feel her body, and why there was absolutely no sound. The second time was much easier, as is the case in most things. There was the darkness, there was the silence, the nothingness, and then Meg started feeling the familiar tingling that signaled the arrival of all of her parts at their final destination. But then she felt a pressure she had never imagined, as though she were being completely flattened out by an enormous steamroller. This was far worse than the nothingness had been. While she was nothing, there was no need to breathe. But now her lungs were squeezed together so that although she was dying for want of air, there was no way for her lungs to expand and contract to take in the air that she must have to stay alive. I wonder if Meg's feelings of being trapped and unable to breathe are similar to what the writer of Ephesians meant when he said, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. The writer exaggerates to make a point. Obviously, we're not physically dead yet. But our spirits were lifeless, lifeless, when we were addicted to the literal trappings of this world that sinful people make normal. Greed, pride, prejudice, materialism, and the mantra, if it feels good, do it, regardless of who it hurts in the process. Before his conversion, Early church father Augustine once robbed a pear tree. He tells that he desired to rob the tree, and he did rob it, but he was impelled neither by hunger nor poverty. In fact, he did not want the pears at all. There were better ones in his own orchard. Even after the theft, he took no joy in what he had stolen. He says, but I took joy in the theft and the sin. Ever been there? Taking joy in revenge? Joy in seeing an enemy get her due? Joy withholding forgiveness? Joy in stealing someone else's good idea and reaping the undue credit? While the first three verses of this passage from Ephesians may be a little murky to us, their first-century audience would have understood well the references to the demonic forces pulsing in the air, spirits that attempted to cajole and guide them in the directions of selfishness and evil, to chain them to the passions of their flesh, in the words of that writer. Many of us have felt that, too chained to the passions of our flesh. One very small word turns things around 180 degrees. The word B-U-T 
can turn things from a positive to a negative direction, as in, I'm not prejudiced, but... I don't like to talk about people, but... Here, thankfully, it works the other direction. But God, who is rich in mercy, not wrath, out of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Jesus Christ. Alive together with Jesus Christ. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. And we celebrate the fact that we are alive together with Jesus Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He says it twice in this short passage. Raised up, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us, again, in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful turnaround. It's like in A Wrinkle in Time when Meg Murray comes out of a two-dimensional world and her lungs can expand again. Or when Augustine was converted and spent the rest of his life in service to God and the church. Or when Christine and Jessica were buried in the waters of baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We were dead, but our God of grace has made us alive together with Christ. Some of you in small groups have read some Philip Yancey books, in the one called What's So Amazing About Grace he recounts this story about C.S. Lewis, that during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from around the world debated what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. They began eliminating possibilities, incarnation, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form, resurrection, Again, other religions had accounts of return from death. And the debate went on and on until C.S. Lewis wandered into the room. What's the rumpus about, he said, or asked, and heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among world religions. And Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. And after some discussion, the conferees had to agree. The notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, these are Yancey's words, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhist Eightfold Path, the Hindu Doctrine of Karma, the Jewish Covenant, and the Muslim Code of Law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. What great mercy this shows. Grace implies mercy. 
It implies that what we have done will not be counted against us, so that where we might have deserved punishment, we do not receive it. In one of William Barclay's Bible study books, he notes that when the Confederate Army was finally defeated, Abraham Lincoln was asked how he would treat the rebellious Southerners. The question hinted at the desire, like we were talking about earlier, for revenge, the desire to see the South severely punished. But the merciful president said, I will treat them as if they had never been away. I will treat them as if they had never been away. Lincoln seemed to have that perspective of being seated with Christ in the heavenly places and able to look down from a fuller divine perspective on all of what is happening down on this earth. While we suffer from the sins that entrap us and their consequences, God treats us as if we had never turned away. Grace and mercy are powerfully moving gifts. And in a way, this change from judgment to mercy doesn't make sense to us. We're still trapped in the mindset and the rules of this world, even thinking that we can earn God's favor and mercy. In the movie Superman 2, Superman and Lois Lane decide that they're in love, so Superman chooses to give up his superpowers in order to marry Lois Lane. He's warned in advance that if he surrenders his powers, he can never have them back. And still he chooses to surrender these powers, and so he becomes just the ordinary Clark Kent. But of course, shortly afterward, there are three supervillains at the White House, and they're attempting to establish themselves as rulers over the planet Earth. Now, more than ever, the Earth needs a Superman, but it's too late. The dejected Clark Kent hikes through a raging blizzard back to Superman's fortress of solitude in ruins. And as he walks through the rubble, he cries out, Father, I have failed. And all of a sudden, the scene changes to Metropolis. The supervillains are wreaking havoc and terrorizing the townspeople, and the music starts. Suddenly, up in the sky... It's not a bird. It's not a plane. It's... Thank you. Somehow, someway, he regained his superpowers and he's back. Now, somebody pointed this out. It's anonymous, so I don't know who it was, but said that the writers of this film put themselves in a bind. They established a rule that if Superman surrenders his powers, he can never get them back. Then he surrenders his superpowers. If the writers had stuck to this rule the movie would have ended there. But the writers took some liberties. They changed the rules in the middle of the story to get Superman and the planet Earth off the hook. Well, there's grace. Since we're unable to earn our salvation, God changed the rules and sent Jesus to show us the profound power of God's infinite mercy and grace. 
Jesus is not the only one empowered to do God's good works. Each of us is called by God to join in that divine work on earth. Our salvation doesn't depend on it, but we're invited to do it. I thought it was interesting when I read that Debbie Fields, the founder of Mrs. Fields Cookies, opened her first store at the age of 20. She went several days with no customers coming in. And so she got an idea. She filled a tray and stepped out onto the sidewalk and gave the cookies away. And then people followed her back into the store and started buying her cookies. Well, that's such a great image for the church. Do you see that? We bake our cookies in here. We take them out the doors and hand them out graciously and mercifully to others. And then we invite them to know Jesus here where we learn more and more each time we gather. We have something delicious to offer the world. As we go from here, we will step outside into a world that needs God's mercy and grace and love. And we have it. We have it on our trays, waiting to be given. Let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, for your joy, for your love, for your calling to us to share in your good works. But we thank you that our lives do not depend on that, and your love does not depend on that. Thank you for loving us and receiving us just as we are. We pray in the name of our Lord and loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.